Good morning again. Um, our passage today is 1 Corinthians. We are uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We're coming in the home stretch. Um, on Easter, we'll cover the 15th chapter, and then we'll have one more sermon after that. So we're coming in, and right now, uh, well, what we've been saying this entire time, you've heard it a few times, is Corinth was messy. And church is messy, especially the American church. We emulate a lot of things with Corinth. Of course, a lot of things are very different. Um, and we're now moving into this place where verses, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are really one section dealing with spiritual gifts. And this is an area, as you can imagine from your own pasts, uh, might be one of those big questions. What are spiritual gifts and how do they work? And how does the Holy Spirit operate? And so this morning, I hope, uh, I, I can promise you, I will not solve all of the mysteries of the Holy Spirit and His gifting. But hopefully we'll see from this passage the real goal for Paul is unity in the body, and that's what we'll see for ourselves. So now if you'll look at um, chapter 12, I'll read the entire chapter, and we will dig in. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those, body, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts we treat, excuse me, are treated with greater modesty. Which are, which are, sorry, verse 24, which are more presentable parts do not require. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we give you praise that it is you, through the Spirit, who have revived us and brought us into your kingdom. And you reveal this scripture to us by the same Spirit. And I pray this morning this would be clear that we would see your love, your mercy, your unity on our lives, individually and more important, corporately, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. A few years back, uh, the movie Moneyball came out. Who saw Moneyball? It's a very interesting, it's the movie with Brad Pitt. I like it. Marsha's like, you saw it, Tom. (laughs) Sorry. Well, maybe you'll remember if I do a good job illustrating it. Probably not. It's the Oakland A's. They're a small market for baseball, $44 million a year, small market. Uh, they're competing with guys like the New York Yankees who have $125 million a year budget. And so they have to find ways to compete. And in 2002, um, Billy Bean, who's played by Brad Pitt, brings in a new method. Uh, I was talking to Shane earlier, the Sabre something? or The Sabre metrics. Shane's our baseball guy, so you can ask him more about it. And these are just ways of saying, look, the old guard, the, the past folks, the coaches, the scouts, the, the fans, the front office, the players, they, they really looked at these, these uh, matrices that were maybe great for individuals, like I can hit the ball a billion feet or whatever, but it really didn't play out for the team. And so these Sabre metrics come in, and they really have a lot of new statistics to look at. I won't name them all. But what they did is they could start looking at players differently through the computer algorithms, et cetera, and, and, and by employing it, there's a, there's a period of time in the movie where it wasn't working. But by the end of the movie, the Oakland A's, it's a true story, had one of their best postseasons ever. Um, I think they went on to play for the pennant and lost, which is not usually a great thing. But the Red Sox also employed the same method that very same year and have since won, I think, we just, was it two, three World Series using these methods. So what is this all about? Corinth was using the old method of evaluating the church. Who's the best speaker? Who has the greatest gifts? You know, who's the most liked? And I think in our church we do this, American church, right? How do you evaluate a church? As a pastor, I say, oh, I'm a pastor. What's, what's the first question I get asked? How many people go to your church? I love to just say, I say this every time, 5,000. <laughs> it is, they do, people are, they're kind of like, they look at me differently, and then I reveal that I'm lying. Or individually, how do you evaluate your own life as a Christian? I think we're stuck, if we're not careful, in old matrices, old measurement models, flesh-driven methods that want to make the individual great, losing sight of the body, the team. And so what Paul is teaching in this passage is if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's, not, there's no two ways around it. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I just want you to know there is one kind of Christian in this room 
the spirit-filled Christian. Well, I got an amen. We can just close right there. Do you live as one who is spirit-filled? That is the question we're going to look at this morning. The three points will be uh, the Spirit is the one that gives us our gifts, gives us our identity, and gives us our life. So, what is this gifting? This is going to be the hardest part to go through. Some of you might really wrestle with these spiritual gifts and what they mean. And we'll, we'll actually, in chapter 14, come back to them. But it's interesting. When Paul says, now concerning, chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning, Paul, that's his way of saying, back to what you had asked me about. In this letter, he's answered questions they've asked, like food sacrifice to idols, and then he's brought up things they didn't ask, like divisions in the church and, and their own spirituality. This is one they really wanted to know about. But it's also interesting because he doesn't commend them. Oftentimes in the charismatic world, it's, it's the Corinthian church that's heralded as this is where you learn about spiritual gifts. And Paul's saying, you know, you've got some, I need to inform you. I don't want you to be uninformed. So he's not that excited about their view of the gifts. Most, a lot of scholars think the, the gift they particularly gravitated toward was the speaking in tongues. And the reason for that is, um, as we know in our own culture, that's the easiest one to, uh, whatever your belief is about tongues, you know that it's often faked, right? I mean, I actually know Christians themselves that will tell me, I thought I was speaking in tongues, I really don't know that I was. And so for Corinthians, they have, since the beginning of the letter, they have loved the tongue, and they have loved the ability to speak and, and, and utter things, and so that might be their bigger, um, the gift they lifted up. And that's why some would say in this list, which we'll go through now for a second, verses 8 to 11, the very last gift mentioned is tongues. Uh, one commentator said it's kind of like when you see the list of the apostles, what's the last apostle always listed? Judas. It's like, and there was Judas. So, let's look at these gifts that Paul brings up, starting in verse 8. For to one is given, through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge. I, I, most likely, these are, these are gifts dealing with the proclamation of the Word of God. Right? The Spirit has given some people, and really all Christians, to some, some little ability, but in different degrees, some more than others, the ability to speak knowledge or speak wisdom. Right? Um, but then it says to another, verse 9, faith. That's not saving faith, right? Uh, every Christian has saving faith, which the Spirit gives. But some people have greater faith than others. They can handle greater disaster than others uh, or greater uh, risks and issues. And then it says, uh, there's two in a row that are interesting here. The gift of healing and the gift by one Spirit and to another, the working of miracles. And so certainly... There are these gifts present at Corinth and in, and in the church at large where the Spirit can pour out miracles and healing, right? Uh, one example would be Paul. You know the story um, where in Acts 20, Eutyches is listening to Paul preach. You think that I make you want to fall asleep? Well, Eutyches fell asleep. He's sitting up on a window and he's just kind of drifting off and he falls and he dies, Right? And what does Paul do? He not only heals him because he's dead, he like brings him back to life. That's like even, that's uber healing, right? <laughs> not to be confused with the, anyway. It's like, I need healing. Um, and yet, here's what's interesting. Later, for Paul, Epaphrodites comes to him with a gift, right? When he's in prison. Epaphrodites was from Philippi. 
and brings him this love gift from the Philippians. And he was sick. Remember? And Paul was, was worried, anxious about Epaphrodites, and he doesn't heal Epaphrodites. And then there's Timothy. Paul gives him encouragement on how to drink wine for his stomach ailment. Why, what am I saying? That for Paul, it seems like the spiritual gifts aren't just a power for an individual, right? It's not like I have this gift, and I will now walk around and, and shower my gift. But rather, it's spirit-led. Um, it's spirit-driven, even at the most miraculous phases of it. I think when you think of the prophets of the Old Testament, I don't think you could wake Isaiah up in the middle of his life and go, give me some awesome prophecy. He gave the prophecies that God led him to give in the time and the place, right? Uh, certainly the gift of teaching and preaching wanes and waxes over one's life and, and career. So, so these gifts, that's about as difficult as they're going to dive into them. And you're all like, come on, we need more. What's the point? Look at verse 7. To each, okay, everyone. The last word in my version of chapter six, or verse 6 is everyone. And then verse, verse 7 says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, we're going to go up now. We started at the bottom half of that portion. We're going to move up to verses 4 through 6, where Paul gives us a Trinitarian framework. Look what he says in verse 4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of, where am I? Um, Verse 5, sorry, I looked up. 6, and there are varieties of activities, thank you, but it is the same God. So he presents the Trinity, doesn't he? He says, look, The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are themselves co-equal, exactly the same, and yet they're distinct, and you can't understand it, it's that model that's where the gifts come from. Not only the gifts, but the activities and the services. They all come from the same God, but what is the purpose? That the team would perform, right? Win the game. Not that your own baseball card sells more, or that you have a, better, a bigger Gatorade contract, but that the team is carrying out the mission of God. And that's the question for us. Is that what we long for? Is that what we're after um, in our Christian life? Are you, when you think about your role at Grace and your role in the larger church, are you eager to see God's kingdom come to bear through these gifts? Now, again, I promised in chapter 14 we'll have to dig in deeper. So that's, that's all we're going to do on spiritual gifts for today. Okay. That was awkward. I was just going to see if anyone wanted to raise their hand and ask a question. Anyone? Maybe that's something chump. I don't think we're going to go into that tonight, but every hard passage we have something else. Have you noticed that? Tonight it's Cindy. You can ask Cindy about these questions. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts for his body, for the body of Christ, but he also gives us our identity. And this is really the point that I I just felt the Lord impressing on me. I want you to understand is there are no ordinary Christians. Everybody is filled with the Spirit if they are a Christian. And let's look at this passage, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Right? So Christ, for one in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Paul is saying, look, there is this body, this church. But for Corinth, and this is where I think the American church overlaps with Corinth a little bit, we really do lift up individuals. We really do want individuals to succeed. We want individual churches to be special. 
right? We want individual Christians to be the ones that are, are the most looked at and sought after. Um, and that's hard. As a pastor, it's easy to go, well, he's the pastor. And so, you know, how am I doing? See, I can really, this is one of those sermons I could flub and blame you. Because, see, I'm just a pastor. I'm just one little cog in the wheel. But the question is for you and for the, everybody. Um, we don't have the blue chairs out this morning. We didn't need them today. But sometimes you have those blue chairs. And I thought about titling the sermon, There Are No Blue Chair Christians, uh, instead of Blue Hair Christians. Anyone? Um, we are all one identity, and we are all part of this one body. And Paul makes this argument that's really interesting, that is so straightforward, it almost needs no explanation, but being a preacher, I will explain it. Starting in verse 14, he talks about the body, right? And he gives really two large-scale examples, inferiority and superiority, right? Some people struggle with inferiority. The way you're involved in the church is you kind of are sheepish. I want to sit at the back. I don't want to get too involved. I don't want to sign up for anything. Others are superior. They're like, I'm here, and I'm going to come in, and I'm going to rock your world, okay? And I think Paul has warnings for both. Let's look at this a little closer. Starting at verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, right? That would not make it any less a part of the body. And then 16, and if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Both of those are examples of a body part sort of thinking, I'm not as significant as someone else. It's inferior, right? I'm a, I'm a foot, I'm not a hand. I want to be a hand. But because I'm just a little lowly old foot, I'll just kind of be over here and, and go by my way. Inferiority. What about the superiority? Look at um, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, well, I have no need of you, right? We're good up here. We got the music, the preaching. You know, we don't need the hand or the eye, whatever one. You can't say that, right? I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What? Okay, Paul is about to do something that's, I think, fascinating. He is saying, no matter how weak you think you might be, or some people are, and that would be bad if you're lowering other people in your own view, they're indispensable. And he does this thing he does elsewhere where he brings up parts of the body you shouldn't bring up, right? Um, remember Galatians? The circumcision party had come in and what they were doing, and Paul says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. And you're like, Paul, you can't tone it down. Well, look at verse 23. Paul says, And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. What is he saying? He's saying, if you have two giant pandas left on earth, and you put them in a, in a pen... And, and you ask the scientist, what is it you hope is going to happen in that pen? What's the answer? Baby pandas, right? They're going to use their immodest parts to create babies. Yet when you think about a giant panda, that's not the part you think of. His point is that sometimes the hidden things that are covered on body parts are the most important parts. And so there are no weaker people. There are no uh, less important Christians. Am I getting that across? Is that awkward? The archaeologists, when they uh, have gone through Corinth, remember there's two Corinths, really. There's the city that was a Greek before Rome came in and sacked it. And then there's the rebounded Roman colony that still had much Greek culture, but it had Roman culture. And there was an old Greek 
um, temple that they found, remember it had the clay body parts, right? And, and they, what they found out was people who had a disease or an illness or an injury would go and have, I guess, an artisan make a body part that they would say, that's what I want, like my hand or whatever to look like that, and they would go in and present it at the temple. Well, one of the most popular body parts were feet. And it's because in that culture, you have to walk all the time. And if you couldn't get somewhere, we don't have, they didn't have motorized scooters or anything like that. So here, even in our passage, the foot wants to be the hand, but if your foot is hurt, all you can think about is what? My foot, right? And so here's, I want to try to bring some application in for just a moment. Every person in this room matters. I, I don't know, I, I wish I could explain that, like, we not just, want, not just here, but at the, when we go to the Carnes house, we have Bible studies, we have small groups, we want to be together. I feel like that old, I'm an old mom, who's like, I just want the family to come to dinner, you know? Just come. I don't want to force you, but I want you to just show up, you know? But yet, when you're not here, I think, oh, we miss you, right? Everyone matters. Um, and not only just on Sunday mornings, the church is beyond Sunday, right? The church is throughout the week. What you do every day of your life, everywhere you go, you are a child of the living God, indwelt by the Spirit, representing the kingdom of God in His church. And everybody has a significant role. I can't tell you your exact role. And I will say this, though. I don't know that you can tell me your exact role outside of the mission of the church. Right? Who would know Doug could play the guitar? If we didn't say, hey, we need a musician to get up there and give it a go. Maybe that's not a great example. Or teaching. I know when I started trying to learn how to teach and preach, the only way I could tell if it would work is someone said, here, here's the youth group. Just go, go in there like we've done with other guys. Here, go teach that group. And you get in there, and you start trying. The jury is still out on whether the gifting is there. Um, but with any gift, it comes when. Not just when you want it to happen. It's not on a survey. Yes, I, I think there are ways and you can learn, but it really comes when you're in the group, right? At the CREC building, I was the least qualified to be there. But if someone's like, hey, that door goes out there under that truck, you do it. You know, you picked it up and then you walked out and hoped they didn't tear your back out. I think the mission of the church works like that. If you want to know what is your spiritual gift, what is the body part you represent, not that you have to nail it down, but you won't find it sitting at home reading a book necessarily. You'll find it in the mission of the church. Um, a few weeks ago, I referenced this somewhat sloppy, so I found it, and I want to re try it again a little better. C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, um, is a, it's a work of fiction because he's taking a, the, the guide is taking someone to hell and then someone to heaven, and and showing this person heaven, he comes across a figure. And I mentioned that you would want to worship the ordinary. Well, this is where I, I think I got it from. This, the person says, is it? Is it? And he's obviously thinking, is it like Jesus? And the guide says, not at all. It is someone you'll have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. Ah, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. And the guide says, haven't you read your Milton? I haven't. 
so no, no, nobody to take offense at that. A thousand liveried angels lacking her. Well, and who are all these young men and women on each of her sides? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a huge family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was one of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it wasn't the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And then he concludes by saying, Yes, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool, and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? But redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength, but already there is joy enough in the little finger of one great saint, such as Sarah Smith, as, a, as this young yonder lady, to awaken all the dead things of the universe into life. So the ordinary Sarah Smith, who most of the world would walk by, would say, ah, she's nothing in heaven, looks on her and is glorified by it. That's the saint God has called every one of you and I to be. We all are part of this mission. We are all part of this church. And he's placed his spirit in you. He's given you the gifts. He's given you your identity, saint. And now we have to talk about where you get the life from. And the answer, of course, is the spirit. Look back at our passage. Again, I want to call your attention to verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This idea of baptism, it doesn't, some people want to talk about a second event. You know, okay, you're a Christian here, but now the spirit has come upon you. That is not in the Bible. In the Bible, there is one baptism, and that is baptism into the Lord. And the Spirit is the one who conveys and brings you all the identities of Christ to you. Um, we saw baptism earlier in this, in this letter. Remember, Paul says in chapter 1, I'm thankful I didn't baptize more of you. Remember why he said that? Because a lot of folks were kind of like, well, I follow this guy, I follow that guy. And they were really excited by who baptized them. And Paul's like, quit it. Don't take something so amazing as baptism and turn it into this superstition. Then later in chapter 10, he talks about how the Israelites were baptized when they passed the water and became one, right, following Moses' lead. They, the cloud had passed over them. They were baptized, he says, into the water in the cloud. Baptism is being set apart and being created into a new identity. And in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come on you and made you a new creation. We have this thing called the Shorter Catechism. I don't know how many of you go off and read when I say, hey, go read that. Well, I thought I had a Shorter Catechism. Now we may not have it. Oh, no. Come on, one more page. Yes. Sorry. You were like, yay. It's like when the teacher's like, okay, recess. Question 29, how are we made to share in the redemption purchased by Christ? And the answer, we are made to share in the purchase, redemption, redemption, in the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. 
The next question, well, how does the Spirit apply to us this redemption? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by producing faith in us and by this uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Last one, okay? This is the best one for me, I think. Okay, you can rank, this is not scripture. You can, rank, you can rank these. What is effective or effectual calling in the answer? Effective or effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit by which he convinces us of our own sin and misery, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renews our will, and so persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So, Paul is telling the Corinthians who have written him about spiritual gifts and who's more important. He's saying, stop. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on you. You are a new creation. This is true. And look at verse, the end of verse 13. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Do you drink of the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? I want to turn you to John 7, one of the best places I think that explains this concept. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths. Uh, he wasn't even going to go, or at least he wasn't advertising his attendance there. And at the end, it says the very last day, verse 37, and we had this in our assurance of pardon. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now just pause for a moment. Have you ever thought, I'm going to make an announcement? And then everyone's like, great. You know, that was supposed to be really amazing. And I was going to tell you, hey, everybody, there's some donuts that are left over. And you're like, ah, no thanks. Jesus stands up on that last day and he cries out this announcement. And I think it went over very well. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in verse 39, John adds, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus Christ had not been glorified. Jesus Christ has now been glorified. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's telling you and I, your life comes from the Spirit. The question is, what are you drinking from? See, the reality is, a lot of us go, okay, there's spiritual gifts, we're all in Christ, we're all great, but what's wrong with my spiritual life? Are you, do you ever feel stuck? See, sometimes you're stuck because of really gross, hidden sin, and you ought to repent of that. I, I encourage you, let this be the day where you talk to a neighbor, talk to me, one of the elders, anyone that said, Gee, I, I'm struggling in this sin pattern. But many of us are struggling in our attempts at self-righteousness, right? We read that in the Confession of Sin this morning. It's our acts of self-righteousness so often that keep us distant from Jesus. And the Corinthians are sitting here going, I want to be spiritually powerful. I want to be known as a Christian. Isn't that what you want, Paul? Isn't that what you want, church? Don't you want the guys to sign up for everything and go with the guys and gals and go through training and learn? And Don't you want people to take leadership? And Paul's saying, well... What I really want is for you to drink of the Spirit, right? And stop living by the flesh. Um, I want to just kind of close with this concept. 
The Beatitudes begin with, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. How do I know I'm drinking from the Spirit? I will begin to see my poverty, my needfulness, right? I'll realize in myself I have nothing. What does it mean to live out of the flesh? Um, have you ever crammed for a test? Who, raise your hand if you're a crammer. Okay, here's my problem. I'm a crammer and then I do bad. <laughs> it's like the worst of both worlds. It's like either do it slowly, but have you ever, okay, maybe once or twice I've crammed and it went okay. But you know, you don't ever go, that was great. What do you do like at 2 a.m. on a night you're cramming? You're like, Lord, I will never do this again <laughs> if you'll just get me through, Right? But you feel the adrenaline, the sweat. You know, this is not the way I'm supposed to be living. So here I did good on a test, but I would never prescribe this to anybody. I'll forget it the next day. It's completely driven by my flesh. I think we do a lot of our lives like that. We're living on the flesh. You know, it's like an exercise. They talk about uh, you're, you're burning muscle. You know, you don't want to ever burn muscle. You want to burn fat, not, car- you know. We're burning the wrong stuff trying to get the life we want to live. And the Spirit comes along and says, I will give you rivers of living water. What does that mean? It will never cease. It will just flow. But the problem for you and I is you don't just gently unplug from the flesh into the Spirit. It's death. Right? There's something that's driving you, some idol, some deep need, some desire that's keeping you from wanting to just rest in Jesus. I'm talking now to those who would say my spiritual life is sort of struggling. There's this fear that if we unplug from all the methods we've learned, from all the ways we drink, and plug into Jesus, what's the fear? It won't work. We'll die. He'll leave me stranded. Right? And he promises not to. So what are some things you're drinking from? Right? I'm going to just start naming sources of, of drink that I think a lot of us struggle with, right? We drink alcohol. We don't drink alcohol. Social media. I don't do social media. You know, Netflix binging. Like sources of just stuff, right? Uh, relationships. House cleaning. It's got to be perfect. I'm not going to touch it. It's going to get dirty and gross. These are all ways of cleaning or of drinking uh, and finding resources outside of the spirit, right? Um, relationships. Right? The, the opening quote um, that bon- from Bonhoeffer I thought was a great quote where he says, it's a one line. And I think we all fit, fall on one of these two continuums. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. If you can't ever be by yourself, be careful. <laughs> You're not that fun to be around, sorry. Uh, but let him who is not in community, oh, I, I like being alone. Beware of being alone, right? What are you drinking from? What are you doing with your time, with your energy? What happens when you drink from Jesus, from the Spirit, excuse me? How will you know? And I just want to draw our attention and close with this. Verse 3, the last part. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. When I'm drinking from the Spirit, resting in Him, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I'm actually willing to die to all of my needs and to say, take them. Right? So I started the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Finally, you just say, thy will be done.
That will make you into a Sarah Smith of Golders Green, which we need a lot of to see this world transformed. Let us pray. Father, we are a people who so often think about our image instead of your image. We drink from what people or we perceive people thinking about us. Lord, we, we think about ourselves, our church, based on our conduct, based on uh, our gifting, based on our previous um, experiences, Lord. Sometimes we measure ourselves by just our mood, and you'll have none of it. The only way to measure ourselves, as you have so beautifully written in this passage by Paul, is through the Holy Spirit that we are baptized into you, Lord. And I pray that Grace Church would be a church filled with saints who love each other and, Lord, become a winning team, Lord, for your kingdom. Not because of any superstar, but because of our collective love of you. Amen.